Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Jane O'Sullivan, coming in from Australia. Jane, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Joshua. Glad to hear. I'm too. And to get people started, I'm going to read a little bit of your bio. Uh, Dr. Jane Sullivan is an agricultural scientist who has worked mainly on soil fertility management in developing countries. And she's an honorary senior research fellow at the School of Agriculture and Food Sciences at the Faculty of Science at the University of Queensland, Australia. But what got me interested in you is I heard you on my friend Dave Gardner's podcast speaking about population and aging population. And you're, all right, so going on, your concern for the unsustainability of human resource extends from the village to the planet and has led to activism in areas of climate change and population. Long-time listeners know that I've, I'm only recently easing into talking about population. And you're, you're the lead author of a discussion paper called Silver Tsunami or Silver Lining, Why We Should Not Fear an Aging Population, which I've posted about on my blog and has prompted great thoughts on my part. It's really great to hear that people have looked in the numbers and research about what happens when a population ages. And it's totally different than what most people expect. Did I overstate that? <laughs> No, I don't think you did. I find this a really fascinating meme that has really captured the um, the imagination of, of governments around the world in particular, that they're petrified of population ageing and for no good reason. And it's very dangerous because they are deliberately trying to make the population keep growing in order to avoid the end product of our success, which is for most people who are born, lead long and healthy lives and live well into their old age. And if that's going to happen, we're going to have more old people around. And that's a good thing. But for some reason, they think that this is an economic calamity to such an extent that they're willing to put the rest of society's support system at risk, which is the environment that we all depend on, by overloading it with too many people. And that really doesn't come into their thinking in the trade-off between, well, do we want an older, stable or declining population with a healthy environment supporting good quality of life, or do we want a young population with ever bigger cohorts of young people coming through to dilute the old people <laughs> with a collapsing environment? <laughs> and potentially a collapsing civilization because of that. It seems a pretty simple trade-off to me, but most of our political leaders are making the, the other choice, that they'd rather have the environmental collapse than deal with more old people. Now, you said that they do it for no good reason. They, now, they do have reasons, which you, one by one in the paper, it's like these reasons are myths, but they don't think that they're myths because they haven't really gone through to propagate what the, the meaning is or, or to check their assumptions. As you're saying it, I don't think people are saying, hey, let's destroy the environment or let's, like they're, what they're thinking is that if there's too many old people, then the young people won't be able to support them, which isn't the case. But if they think all of the myths, then everything that follows from their behavior makes sense in their minds. It's just, they haven't checked their assumptions, but that's what you do is like, it, if you don't look at the numbers, if you don't really think things through, it is plausible. I mean, imagine there's like five young people in the world and 50 old people, then that, that's not what would happen. But once I've seen someone who's gone through, looked at the numbers, looked at the considerations, then it's like, oh, that really doesn't make sense. It's young people today are the ones that 
take more resources than they give. And old people, we work, I mean, especially in the service economy, we work well into well past retirement ages that I, I loved looking this up to find out that the first time a retirement age came into being was in Otto von Bismarck <laughs> in Germany. And at a time when Germans would live until 40. And we still have remnants of that today as one myth that I came across from your, your work. That's true. So the main myth is that as the population ages, we will have fewer people doing the work and therefore not enough work being done and not enough taxes being paid to provide all of the services that everybody needs. So my obvious response to that was say, well, what is going on in the real world? We've already got this beautiful natural experiment where some countries are a lot more aged than other countries. So let's have a look at the data. And the data says that the oldest countries, which are Japan and Germany at the moment, have just as many people employed per million population as the youngest developed countries like Australia and Israel. And that's because we have this thing called the labour market. And as you know, markets match supply and demand via the price mechanism. And if there are fewer young people entering the workforce and looking for work, then it's likely that wages will go up a bit and the conditions offered to workers will improve a bit. So more working age people will be working and people will defer their retirement. And because of all of those things, you end up with pretty much the same number of people employed, being employed at better wages with less income inequality and a healthier economy as a result of that. You also have a higher proportion of people in their final years of of life who have somewhat higher needs. But that isn't a threat to the economy. It's just a sector that will grow while other sectors like education might shrink a little bit because we've got smaller cohorts of young people. It seems so simple after the fact, after reading that. And I think a lot of people think old means senescent and a drain. It's not just that people are getting older, they're staying healthier longer. That's right. And I think that the work is, I mean, we're much more service-based. It's not people working. I mean, there are people working in factories and on farms, but much less than before. There's a lot of people doing, well, I mean, my mom, I kept thinking about my mom and she has tried and tried to retire and she was a writer and they keep coming back to her and saying, will you please edit this other book? And she's like, no, I don't have time. And they're like, well, here's what we'll offer you now. And she's like, oh, well, okay, I'll accept that. And they keep, oh, it's exactly what you just said. It's, I, it didn't occur to me that like the labor market responds, her, her skills are valued and they offer her more money. Exactly. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, one of the worst things that's happening to society at the moment is increasing inequality of incomes and wealth. And part of that problem is having too many people searching for too few available jobs. And that keeps wages very low at the bottom end of the spectrum. So it's a really good thing for the whole of society if the labour market gets a bit tighter. So employers are forced to work a little bit harder to attract workers to fill the jobs that really matter. And some of the jobs that don't really matter might not get done. That's a good thing, you know, because they're increasing the standard of jobs that are available for people to build their careers on. Yeah. One of the things that in America, they say a lot, 
And by, oh, I should mention, your report is about Australia mainly, but I think it's not just about Australia. It's about the world. That's, That's right. right. Okay. All the developed countries are facing the same dynamics, really. And in America, a lot of people say we need immigration to fill in the jobs that Americans don't want to do. But I think they've got the cause and effect backward, that if we have all these people that will accept low wages, we'll come up with work that never existed before that people just really don't want. We have these slaughterhouse jobs where people work crazy hours with sharp objects that they get really injured. That didn't exist before. I mean, a a butcher was like a, a respected craftsperson. And if you give people, if you say, here's some people that, you know, they have no legal protections, you'll come up with this stuff that's like, you'd much rather have a robot do than a person. I think they have the, am I right that they have the cause and effect backward? Well, I think so. The cause and effect pushes both ways. But certainly there are some jobs that you'll always need people to do that are dangerous and dirty and unattractive. And why shouldn't you be paying people a premium for that instead of paying them bottom dollar because they're the most desperate people who are willing to do that work? So, you know, some people say, oh, well, that'll just make, you know, food more expensive if we have to pay the pickers of vegetables and fruit a decent income. Well, a lot of other things will become less expensive, mainly the things that involve rents and, you know, payments to capital rather than payments for people's labour. So the more we pay for people's labour, the less we're paying for what's called economic rents, the return on somebody's investment, because we don't need as much capital in a population that's not growing so fast. Yeah, you talked a lot about the costs of preparing for a growing society, that that's something we have to balance this against. And I don't, building infrastructure and all sorts of things like that. That's right. So if we are going to artificially keep the population young by adding bigger cohorts of young people in, and they might be immigrants aged in their 20s so that they've got several decades of working life left before they start to retire. And by the time they retire, they'll add to the number of retirees and you need even bigger groups coming in at the bottom. So that's the classic Ponzi scheme Mm -hmm. of population growth that, you know, you can't ever see your way out of it because you always need bigger groups coming in at the bottom to pay for the ones that have uh, worked their way through the system. But the cost of that is, well, partly in the environmental pressures, but also in the cost of man-made infrastructure that we need to support that growth. And people don't think about infrastructure in the same way as a cost because they think, oh, well, you just borrow money to build it and it'll pay for itself down the track. But If you compare a population that's growing steadily, say at 1% per annum, compared with one that's stable, the amount of infrastructure you have to build every year is much higher in the growing population. Now, if you think about infrastructure lasting on average about 50 years for its working life before you have to replace it, if you've got a stable population and you've just got a turnover of infrastructure, you need to pay for 2% of it every year. That's how much you need to renew to replace the stuff that's retiring after it's 50 years. If you're growing at 1% per annum, you've got to add 1% in that year for the 1% of people that are arriving this year. So that's 2% for the maintenance plus 1% for the growth. 
So you're now having to build 3% of your whole infrastructure stock every year. That's a 50% increase on what you would be spending. So a country might spend maybe 13% of GDP building infrastructure, but if it's growing at 1% per year, it'll be spending more than 20% per year of GDP just building infrastructure. That's a big chunk of GDP mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just sunk into running in order to stand still, not improving anything, just making sure there are enough hospital beds, enough school classrooms, enough power stations, enough police stations, enough roads, enough sewers for the extra people that are coming this year. And that is such a big chunk of money that trying to avoid a little bit of extra pensions and healthcare by adding lots more people actually costs more money than just letting the population stabilise and paying the little bit more in pensions and healthcare. So what what you lose in the ageing, you're going to gain in stabilising the population and not having to fork out so much to build every year. Yeah, it's funny because the the numbers don't work out if you want to keep growing. And then it's a Ponzi scheme anyway. It's, I mean, even if the numbers did work out and you were willing to pay more, then... I mean, I hadn't thought about it when I was reading the paper, but... Yeah, what's the end game? Where are you heading there? <laughs> I was going to ask later about like what to do, but now I have to take a step back and put myself... Because when you said Ponzi scheme, I had read it, but hadn't... Now, I guess, because of what you said and connecting with my mom, I'm connecting with life. And I was thinking about Bernie Madoff, like the, the Ponzi scheme. Yeah. And I would guess he didn't say, let's start a Ponzi scheme. I don't know. But at some point, he must have realized it's not working. I got to keep growing. And... The thing to do at that stage would be come clean. I mean, the thing that would hurt the, the least people and, you know, he, he wouldn't look great, but if he said, oh my God, what have I done? This isn't working. I accidentally set something up. Internally, both to himself, he, he, he must've realized that and kept going. And we, just to realize what we're doing doesn't work. We, like the best thing we can do now is to accept that we've made mistakes and stop. That, that mental effort must be very difficult. That's right. But it's a matter of, you know, we're so geared towards that paradigm of pursuit of growth for its own sake that we measure our success by measuring that growth instead of by measuring the quality of life that we can give everybody. <laughs> so we have to really change what we measure as success in order to realise that we can actually succeed better by not pursuing the maximum possible growth in GDP, you know, (laughs) especially when that growth in GDP is not growing GDP per capita, Mm -hmm. it's just adding more people, and especially when that growth in GDP is actually leading to more inequality. So you're not reducing poverty by creating more wealth, you're actually deepening poverty by creating a bigger scarcity of resources that people need to live on. So we need a a big paradigm shift in what we think governments should be trying to achieve on our behalf and what measures they need to to use to measure their success. You know, what you're saying reminds me of a pattern that I've picked up that when you do the math, you know, I have a background in, I have a PhD in physics. So math generally isn't, the average math people see isn't so hard for me, but it's not about the math. The math helps you understand things. Ultimately, what you get to is your values. What what do we measure? What do we say is better and worse? Do we say 
bigger GDP is better or happiness and well-being and longevity and things like that. And it's kind of weird that you have to, you have to understand the patterns, the math. But when you do, it, that liberates you from, it's not, the arguments are not mathematical. Ultimately, it's, it's our values that, have to, that we have to look at and examine. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've, we take too much for granted these days, you know, because the economic commentators are geared up to report on particular metrics that come out every month or every quarter. And that's going to tell us whether we're succeeding or not. But they rarely sit back and say, what is this really telling us about our success? And have we actually succeeded as much by pursuing that strategy as we thought we were? And, you know, in a lot of ways, our societies have succeeded tremendously well, but there are other things going in the other direction and we're just not focusing on the right metrics to pick that up and head it off. And the big existential risks, mostly in the area of environmental deterioration, and we should be all very worried about the state of the environment at a planetary scale and reshaping our economies to be able to thrive without destroying the environment. So stabilising our populations and preferably reducing our populations gently over time would give us a lot more elbow room in terms of a sustainable environment which supports good quality of life. I want to go in two directions now. Um, One of them is when you talk about why people believe that, it almost reads like a conspiracy, but it's not a conspiracy of, of what people... Maybe this. I don't think it's a conspiracy. There are people who benefit from growth, and they propagate these beliefs and these these myths because, in the short term, it does benefit them, and it helps them not to look too long term. And it's really, however specious it is, that if I believe that GDP growth will give me a better chance at a job next year, next month, then I kind of want to believe what they're telling me. So who are the who benefits from growth and and why does that prompt them to to promote more growth? Yeah, certainly. Because I think it helps to know where they're coming from. It's not like they're not like, let's destroy the earth. They're not like, let's ruin everything. I think they probably genuinely in their hearts think, I'm gonna make the world better. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think it's a conspiracy, but they do become very selective in their hearing when you try to present alternative points of view. So the groups that benefit most, property developers, big employers, and big retailers that, that don't face a lot of competition by other people coming into the market. So people with some level of monopoly hold on their um, market share. And those three groups are really becoming ever more dominant in our economies because businesses are tending to aggregate into bigger and bigger units with fewer players. So yes, they benefit by a general growth in the size of the population, or at least in the size of economic activity. They start to not benefit when that population growth is making people poorer and loading people up with more debt. So their consumption spending goes down, you know, and we get stagflation. So it's a bit harder to make money when that starts to hit. And that's really how this scenario plays out in the end, because really the only way that the economy expands to absorb more people 
is by more people taking out mortgages to build the housing units that we need to house people. And as soon as you take out a loan for a mortgage, that money is being spent into the economy and turns into consumption, which creates jobs to absorb those people. But in the background, the aggregate amount of debt that we own, that we have to pay interest on, keeps going up. And the only way we've managed to keep this train on the tracks for so long is by dropping interest rates so that people can take on more debt without it costing them too much to service that debt. That's a classically unsustainable approach to progress, if you like. You know, it's a mirage and we get away with it because we don't look at debt. We just look at the consumption spending, which is the GDP, you know, the turnover. But we're really not looking at debt. And I think we really need to um, step back and think hard about how this system can work in the long term. And to me, it seems pretty obvious that we need to change our economic metrics and we need to put the environment and well-being at the forefront of what we're aiming to do and profits for big corporations and shareholders come well down the list of priorities because in the end we only really care about them to the extent that we need to borrow money off them and maybe we don't so much. This is really thought-provoking. I have to say that I'm glad I'm talking to you beyond just reading the paper because what you said at the beginning about the the companies or the industries that are benefiting from growth, that they are, I'm sure a bunch of them are thinking, if I if we don't grow, I'm not going to have a job. And in other areas of the economy, we look at coal miners and we say, we got to retrain you. We got to, yes, you're very good at mining coal. We respect that, but it's destroying the environment. It's warming the globe and so forth. And we're not just going to leave you high and dry. We, we're going to find ways to, to help you and retrain you. And it didn't occur to me that maybe people who are, I mean, so they, they might vote to keep in a politician who wants to keep mining going, and which would make sense to them in the short term. It, it certainly benefits them in, in a tragedy of the commons way. So someone who wants to develop land, you know, turn some farm into an exurb of some city, they're thinking, oh, if I can't do my job, they... I wonder if some sort of retraining for them might help as well. Do people talk about that? It's kind of funny to talk about retraining a banker or financier to do something, to bank or finance something differently. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. You know, everybody, every time they talk about an industry like the coal industry, for instance, and say, oh, you know, we couldn't possibly lose all those jobs. Well, they were pretty happy to see those jobs disappear when they pulled the rug out from under the car industry. You know, they didn't go in trying to find even retraining for for most of the people laid off in those jobs. There are all sorts of industries that have shrunk in the last 20 or 30 years and people did move out of those industries into other industries. It's just what they had to do. If you happen to be a banker and it happens to you, well, for heaven's sake, if you haven't got faith in your own skill set to do something else, you know, why should you be proposing economic policies that force that on even lower skilled people in the industries for which they've had no mercy? You know, I, th- I think our economy is very capable of adapting to change very rapidly. We've seen that with the information technology revolution. It's changed the structure of so many sectors 
and a lot of jobs that used to exist don't exist anymore. So what? People move to where the the work is needed. But the good thing about an ageing population is that there's less of a pressure to find jobs and the pressure shifts more on finding the right people to do the jobs that you value. So over our life course, we're more likely to have good, secure work for as long as we want it. And if we choose to spend our greater prosperity by having longer retirement rather than accumulating more wealth, then that's also a sign of success because that's what we're choosing to maximise our well-being. So, you know, I'm really not worried about the workforce in our ageing population or even the shifting proportions of different sectors in that society because it's going to happen more slowly than the IT revolution. It's going to happen more slowly than, you know, the the huge shift in offshoring manufacturing to Asia, for instance. (laughs) That was far more disruptive than the demographic ageing that we're going to face over the next few decades. So, you know, we just need to get our priorities right and start worrying about the things that we should be worrying about because, for heaven's sake, there's plenty of them and ageing isn't one of them. What you said about industries changing, you said it'll happen more slowly than others. And when I hear someone say, but so what, these things change, I think that it would happen faster and more. I think the people doing it in the coal industry, if we say, we will train you for something new. And I think that, I mean, obviously, we don't want to keep buggy whip manufacturers in business just because we want to keep them in business. If we don't need buggy whips anymore, we shouldn't just prop up that industry. And if they have control over the government, we shouldn't allow them to just keep getting votes to go their way because of their marketing power. But it might help. This is something I'm just, I mean, literally in this conversation, it's just when this popped in of like going to these industries that are going to be, that are going to change and say, we will help you find something in a new area. I wonder if that could hasten and I don't want to say hasten because haste makes waste, but like make the process faster and more amenable to everyone. I would hope so. Yes. But, you know, one of the best ways to make sure that people who are dislodged from one job find another job is not to have huge levels of unemployment. You know, the queue of other people who didn't have a job and would like to be retrained too, thank you very much, and haven't haven't had their go, you know, and then you're going to say, oh, well, we've got all these coal miners, we're going to give them priority. That might not seem very fair to all the people who are unemployed. But if we've got an ageing population and a shrinking population, there's less surplus labour and less competition for those jobs. So it's much easier for people to shift sideways into a different career if that's what they need to do. And I think there are a lot of opportunities in the sectors that need to grow rapidly, particularly in renewable energy and materials recycling and repurposing and all of the things we need for our um, transition to a sustainable economy. So, yes, there'll be a lot of change, but I think a lot of that could be a positive. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 
I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. When you're talking about the wages, I mean, you're talking about being there being more people available. My economics is not great, but what I'm trying to get at is for years now, it feels like we keep hearing about increases in productivity, more and more productivity. And yet, if we're more productive, shouldn't that mean that we are working less and yet we're working more, working more hours per week? I feel like the productivity gains that we've had have gone to the capital, the rent seekers. And I think what you're talking about- Let's back you up on that. Okay. And so we're not getting, the, the person who's been made more productive is not getting the benefit of the productivity. The person who, I don't know, invented the robot that, is, that um, allows them to do, make more cars with fewer people, that's where the money goes. Is it that if we stop growing so much, that that would shift the productivity, where the gains in productivity go? I think it will shift where the gains in productivity go, yes. It will mean that much more of the productivity gain goes to labour, which is how it should be. In the last several decades, it's nearly all gone to capital in terms of company profits and to the higher income people who, you know, the managers of those businesses and getting premiums for for the scale of work that they can can expand within the business. But the average wage earner has not been seeing wage increases in parallel with productivity gains. And a lot of them have pretty much had stagnant wages in, in real terms. So when you take inflation into account, wages have been pretty stagnant in the USA for working class people for quite a few decades. So that is largely because there are too many people competing for the jobs. And it's too easy for employers to play people off against each other. So if the best thing that could happen socially is for the labour market to tighten, for there not to be so many people entering the workforce looking for a job, um, because that will start to reverse the trends in inequality. And the big corporations will say, oh, we can't make profits and, you know, you, you might not get as big a return on your superannuation fund. That might be true, but society as a whole will be better for it and better able to support people, even if it's just through public pensions rather than through earnings on their savings. And, you know, we can get quite complicated in that realm and a lot of people have closely held feelings about, you know, how much they expect their savings to be earning them in their retirement. But if the price of that is ever-increasing inequality, we get to a stage where society really doesn't function very well because the, the poor are too poor and have too little hope about their future to, for social cohesion to work effectively. We lose trust between different groups of people. And, you know, all of these are malaises that developed countries have really all been experiencing over the last two or three decades. And we can really turn that around by realising that what we're pursuing is a Ponzi scheme. And Ponzi schemes all start to fray and fall apart. And we are fraying and falling apart right now in terms of the social, the well-being of the least advantaged people in the community. Yeah, it, 
never occurred to me just to look at if, if you have all these extra people coming in all the time, you can play them off and you can negotiate a better deal for yourself. And you end up with this increasing inequality. And yet everyone thinks, I mean, in business school, in economics class, they taught us that growth, eventually it evens things out. But, you know, in, in physics. Yeah, I think that's one of those nice stories they like to tell themselves to justify a self-interested line of, of work. I mean, lots of people who earn lots of money in big business think that... A rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Yep. And what they're doing is great for society. Whereas quite a few of them, if you really looked at it critically, what they're doing is really parasitic on society. They're not creating anything. They're just capturing wealth, not from anybody who could be identified as their victim, but from poorer people collectively. You know, that you can't have great accumulations of wealth in the top echelons of society without impoverishing the bottom bottom half. Those two things go together. So the easier it is for rich people to make more money, it's not a rising tide that lifts all boats. It's actually tipping the seesaw so that the poor get poorer. Something that I'm trying to that I'm slowly developing is looking at a world where everyone has the beliefs that this growth is a Ponzi scheme because it's, it's all over. It's, it's, it really seeps into the psyche how many times I've heard this and how much I expect that growth is what works. And, you know, the population has been growing since forever. That must be what's bringing success. And, and we need investment today to make a better world tomorrow. And if we don't grow, then we won't have, you know, tomorrow's drug uh, discovery to heal something or something like that. But so I'm writing this book on sustainability leadership. And one of the considerations I have is that there are many societies that have lived stably for a long time. And you know, since the Industrial Revolution until now, something like 200 some years, we've gone from uh, less than a billion people to really where people can seriously say we might, you know, it's an existential risk. But in well more than that time, the, example, the two examples I use in my book are Hawaii, where the Polynesians discovered it, and then they traded for a while, but then they didn't. And for 500 years, we don't know exactly how long, people lived there stably. They could look around and say, I actually, I don't know exactly how it worked out. I don't think anyone does now. But mm. for something like 500 years, for well longer than between the Industrial Revolution and now, they lived with a stable population. They didn't overage. They, I think partly because they could easily look out, and I think it was about 300,000 people lived there, and they could see all the islands and say, this is what we got. If we use this up, mm. we're done. And the other example I have is the San Bushman in Southern Africa. I, I read this book, Affluence Without Abundance, which I highly recommend. And they lived for, I would have guessed like if they were since before the agricultural revolution, maybe they lived there for a couple of tens of thousands of years, but they were there for 200,000 years. The archaeological record apparently shows. Mm. And they weren't overaging. They were stable. And I'm not saying that we should live like them. I'm just saying that all you need is a couple of counterexamples to show you don't need to grow. And I, I'm still learning to look at the world today. Imagine we chose values that led to us having a stable population. And I imagine you've looked at the world that way longer than I have or more deeply. What does the world look like? Am I right if, that you've, you've had a chance to change your views? 
<laughs> one of the biggest things is that a lot of the innovations that we have made would instead of just meaning that we can support more and more people, those innovations would be meaning that there are fewer poor people in the world and less environmental destruction. You know, it's not a matter of innovating so we can do more. It's innovating so that we can do it better. And there's all sorts of innovations that we wouldn't have needed because, you know, we won't need desalination plants unless we overpopulate the places that don't have enough water. (laughs) So there's all sorts of innovation that happens that's just solving the problems that we're creating for ourselves as we grow. And there's a lovely quote that that I like to refer to that, that says the chief cause of problems is solutions. So we reach one problem like not having enough food and we solve it with the Green Revolution, which meant a lot of artificial fertilisers and irrigation and pesticides and each of those three things is now causing a lot of problems in their own right that we're having to find ways of solving, you know, drawing too much groundwater out of the ground so the aquifers are disappearing and using too much pesticide so the insect populations are plummeting and not able to pollinate the wild plants as well as our crops. So we create these problems by solving problems. <laughs> but if we didn't keep trying to fill up the world with more people just because we're able to do things better and more efficiently, we could be living a much better life with a healthier biosphere around us and much greater resilience. So, you know, we are where we are today. We can't change that and we can't stop population growth overnight either because of what's called demographic momentum, which is just because of the age structure we've got now, there are fewer old people dying than there are younger adults having children. And so that carries growth through into the future until the age cohorts even up. And that's really what the demographic ageing process is. It's just evening up the cohorts so that we'll end up with similar people, numbers of people in their 70s as in their 30s, for instance. We won't ever be swamped by, you know, four times as many people in their 70s as in their 30s. That's not going to happen. All we're going to do is have similar numbers in their 70s and 80s as in their 20s and 30s. And we can cope with that. There's plenty of people between the age of 20 and 70 to to do all the work we need, considering that a lot of the work that's done is not work we need. It's just work that somebody needs an income from. (laughs) So we just end up doing the work that matters and having good, stable employment throughout our working lives to support us in retirement. Because the other thing is that people keep going on about dependence, you know, old age dependency ratios, which is the proportion of people over 65 compared with the proportion of people aged from 15 to 65. Tells you nothing about whether the people over 65 are actually working or whether they're living off their own savings (laughs) or whether, in fact, the people between 15 and 65 are working or maybe also on a pension. But the thing is, People 
in their last stages of lives are mostly supporting themselves from their own working life. But, you know, if we need to support them with pensions, that's not a problem either. The total amount of work that the society can do at any time is plenty to support all the people who are working and all the people who aren't working. It's just going to shift a little bit. That's all. It's so welcome to hear someone who's worked it through and seen the consequences and isn't just saying opinion based on unchecked assumptions. And you're describing a world in the future, because another thing that I think a lot of people think, well, we'll miss out on innovation, but you're, it's just as innovative a world. It's just as, just as much progress. It's devoted toward, I know you just said it, but it's still hitting me, <laughs> of making the world better, not just solving the problems that are imposed on us by running out of resources. I mean, it'll go toward things like, I don't know, I mean, how do we educate students better, writing better novels? I mean, if I don't have to worry about, like one thing I worry about, I live in Manhattan. Is Manhattan going to be underwater soon in my lifetime? Do I, like, are we going to build a wall around Manhattan? If we build a wall around Manhattan, then the waves get splashed into other places. It's not like, and okay, there's all these thoughts. That's not really making my life better at all. And if I were freed from that, I don't want to sound Pollyannish or, or, or silly, but I w- it's the stuff of what culture's made of. I, I'd want to write books and plays and sing and play sports. And I don't want to, like, that's the leisure stuff, but I'd also really, like, I love acting in service of others. I, I can't imagine myself not trying to think of a way I could make the world better, but the, w- the way I'd make the world better would be, I'd look at the, how could I help people live healthier and more fun and it's very, I mean, I still want to work. I still want to help people around me. I still want to connect with people around me. It's just now it's how can I make their lives better? Not just how can I take away a problem? Yeah, I think you're pretty typical. Most people are like that. And most people, you know, into their retirement age, well, you know, when they get into their 60s, they either keep working because they like their job or they keep working because they need the money. Or they retire, but they do something else that's really beneficial to society. And most of the community organisations that I know are largely run by people who are retired. And the fact that they're not getting an income and that's not being counted in GDP doesn't mean that they're not contributing to society because they're doing a huge amount of jobs that society really needs you know, for various charities and environmental organisations and just in family, childcare and caring for people with disabilities. All of that work is hugely valuable, but we don't measure it. And so we just call them dependents because they're not earning an income. (laughs) But that's just a measurement problem. It's not the case that they are not contributing to society. So most people will contribute to society very successfully until the last few years of their life when they might become too old and frail to do that. But as people are living longer, they're also staying healthy and active longer and they're not increasing the period of time in which they need high levels of care, whether that's health or aged care. You know, that the period, the average period for which people need that is staying roughly the same, even though our lifespans are increasing. So, you know, I think we can celebrate ageing as being 
a way of lengthening the opportunity to do things in our lives. And retirement is a time when we can not think about doing it for the money and think about what we really want to be able to contribute to society. At least a lot of people I know are in that boat, you know, that they've finally reached retirement, which means they can do the job they've always wanted to do. And now's the chance. Yeah. I'm so glad we had this conversation because talking to you now, it's making personalizing. I'm, I, I suspect that listeners can hear that I'm like taking what you, what I read in the paper, which it's, it's remarkably accessible. It's not academic, what uh, academies or, you know, it's not really, um, it's a discussion paper. It's not a peer reviewed, but I, in one of those journal language things, anyone can read it. Hmm. But even so, I guess it really hit me when, when I think about how my mom is like, they offer her more money. That's exactly what you're talking about. And now I'm, I'm thinking about a world in which I am not trying to solve all these problems. And I'm thinking about how to make the world a better place. So I have to wrap up because of time, which pains me. I hope to bring you back because I hope people are having the experience that I am of, of applying this to their lives, applying it to, the, to their communities and their families of what it would mean to have, we're not fighting each other. There's less of a labor force and therefore the whole negotiation switches toward how do we live better lives? It's really fascinating. I'm just fascinated by it. Absolutely. It changes the whole dynamic. It's not a matter of, you know, how can we innovate in order to convince people to consume things they never knew they needed so that we can derive an income from it? We stop thinking that way. We start thinking, well, how can we apply the workforce that we have to best enhance the lives of everybody in the society? I think it's a much way of looking at, you know, at the framework for our economy. At least in my case, I hope other people are getting this faster or got this already. I suspect most people haven't even considered it. I certainly didn't up until recently. But even now that I'm thinking about it, I hope to have you back a second time to after I've propagated this a bit and, and thought it through and like let it simmer or, or boil because it's really fascinating to think about how it changes lives as opposed to not to take away from, but like to look at the numbers. And if it's okay, I'd like to ask before closing, I'm also curious on a personal level, how did you get into this? Did you intend to, at some point in your career, say, let's look at population or did it come from, how did it start off? I think I always had the interest in population as one dimension of the sustainability conundrum. And I've always been a bit of a myth buster. <laughs> I've always not taken statements on face value, but wanted to go back and look at the references that they're drawing on to make that statement and saying, mm, is that really transferable into this situation? <laughs> and, you know, what's the basis for that assertion? And in doing that, you find often that common knowledge is not well grounded. You know, that there's real data that shows that the picture is very different from the one that is being portrayed in the popular media. So I just sort of naturally fall into that that mode of trying to find out the truth and then finding sometimes that the truth is quite surprising and quite contrary to the mainstream story. Did you at the beginning know, I, I'm picturing you kind of pulling at the thread and then finding out the whole sweater unraveled. Yeah. Or did you know from the start the scale of what you were looking at? 
No, I didn't know from the start. I, you know, I've, I've sometimes been working up data and then you suddenly put it in a chart and it blows you away. You know, it's so strongly yelling the opposite of the story that you're getting from the media. You know, that it can be an amazing revelation to really look for the data behind some of these phenomena that are being discussed. But in terms of, you know, growing populations versus ageing, I always knew that the balance of benefits would be in favour of more ageing, less growth, because the environment demands that. It's just the human population can't grow on this planet forever. That has to be the answer in the end. But the question was, how big are the trade-offs that we need to make in order to embrace a sustainable pathway? And the surprise has been there are very few downsides of this. It's mostly a win-win situation. And yet we're being told the opposite, you know, that the, the risks of growth are being so diminished or ignored and the risks of population ageing are being conflated way beyond their deserved attention. It's, it's really um, a very disturbing trend and one that I hope that more people will learn to be sceptical about and to push back against and say, no, we, what we want is an ageing population with a tighter work, workforce and less destruction of the environment. Thank you very much. Well, I hope two things. Well, of, many, of the many things I hope, I hope two things. One, I hope to bring you back a second time to develop some of this beyond as far as you've developed it and to pursue it in different directions. And I hope also to get this message out to more people so that more people start thinking this way and start pulling at the threads and realizing, and I, I mean, you've already pulled the thread and, and, and shown what happens that you get. I hope, so I hope I start propagating this to others and feeling like changing values, looking at what we want and all the things that you said. Great. It'd be my pleasure to come back. Is there anything to wrap up with? Anything I didn't think to ask that, or any message that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Oh, I think we've given them plenty to think about for the time being. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might end up being here for another half an hour if I raise a different issue. Well, Dr. Jane O'Sullivan, thank you very much. My pleasure, Joshua. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.